0: Alright, well if you've got Bibles, 1 Samuel chapter 25, um, I told you we were going to be in Samuel for a long time. I noticed this week, this is our 22nd week in the book of uh, 1 Samuel, but we're coming towards the end, we're getting there, a few more weeks and we'll finish up 1 Samuel, and then you're reminded there's an entire second book of Samuel, so we're not done, Uh, but remember I warned you, we're going to be in David a long time. So Uh, The last few weeks, specifically within David's story, the thing we've been looking at is what we've called these wilderness times. Uh, The wilderness, we said, the way we've described it for about four weeks now is uh, this wilderness experience for David on the run, hiding out, trying to escape persecution and death from Saul was really an experience we described as sharpening his senses, a refinement these experiences in the wilderness, helping him learn to see things and hear things and this week taste things that he hadn't before really all of that comes down to the idea of David learning to pay attention to God, and not just in a mental way, but in this full experience of life, lived in this place with all of the people around him. He's learning to be the kind of king that will rule under God's authority, through God. The first thing we saw was his ability to listen, to pray, not just by asking for things or talking about himself, but a kind of listening and attentive prayer that recognizes and hears what God is doing around him. The second one last week was David's sight, if you'll remember the scene, he looks at Saul, vulnerable in the cave. Everyone else said, this was your moment. Take action. Take the crown for your stealth. And instead, David picks up on something everyone else misses. He sees God's hand at work, even in the complexity of Saul, and he walks away with the word anointing. He sees it, God, in places that no one else saw it or thought to look i said that this week which is really our kind of final one of these lessons in the wilderness experience i said at the beginning we were going to call this week feelings so his listening his seeing and his feelings But the more i spent time in the story this week uh there's plenty of feelings in the story as you'll come to see but i want to switch the word to appetite or hunger which goes well with the senses taste uh, pretty quickly when you read this story you're going to recognize that david develops a certain kind of appetite a craving a hunger and it, too, has to be refined and reshaped by God's presence like so many of the senses before. So if you've got your Bibles, First Samuel chapter 25. This is a great story. This is one of my favorites in these wilderness stories. So we'll read through it, and uh, hopefully you come to like it as much as I do. First Samuel chapter 25, verse 1. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Moan, Whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich, and he had three thousand sheep and a thousand goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, the name of this man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite of the tribe of Caleb. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, so David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please, give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. So I take from my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, and Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out to the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. And we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as they went with them. They were a wall to us both day and by night. All the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste. And she took two hundred loaves, and two skins of wine, and five sheep already prepared, and five shaws of parched grain, and five hundred clusters of raisins, and two hundred cakes of figs, and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all of this fellow, all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned evil for good. God, do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servants speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so he is. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord, whom who you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, Now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do you evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now, let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespasses of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, In the care of the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause, or for my Lord, working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your dis- your discretion. And blessed be you, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from the working of salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly, by morning, there had been not left to Nabal so much as one male." Then David received from her hand what she had brought to him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king, and Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. And the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later... The Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel... They said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, behold, your handmaiden is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. All right. An interesting story. The three things I want to do this morning, uh, three points we'll work through, there'll be these Hunger see it pretty obviously at the beginning. Vulgarity and beauty. I realize you're probably saying, oh, those are the same three words I wrote down in the margin of my Bible when I read it last night. (laughs) Stick with me. I promise uh, you'll see it. Hunger, vulgarity, and beauty. This first one, hunger, comes through pretty obviously in the story. It opens as the setting. It's a straightforward kind of hunger. David sends his men off to request food from Nabal. We learned that in David's spare time, he's now been in the wilderness what's probably several seasons, a new season coming in here, the shearing of the sheep. With plenty of time on his hand, hiding out in this wilderness, he and his men have formed a kind of protection service. Think of them as a neighborhood watch meets a police agency. They've been patrolling the wilderness area and protecting those, like Nabal, who live there and work there. Uh, there weren't cities in the wilderness that David finds himself in. There were occasional travelers who passed through roads and scattered herds of these Bedouin shepherds like Nabal who took up residence there. This wilderness land didn't have all of the infrastructure in place of villages and cities. There were no laws, no armies, no fortified walls for people to take protection behind. Every man was pretty much on his own in the wilderness, and most of the robbers and marauders knew it as well. It was pretty common for them to single out these easy targets in the wilderness and take advantage of them. Living here was living on your own means, by your own hand, trying to scrape out a living in a dangerous world. So David took up the task of protecting the innocent, watching over shepherds, protecting travelers as they went through. One of those men that he had spent some time protecting, he and his flock, was Nabal. We learn right away that Nabal is a wealthy man. It's possible that he lived maybe in a nearby city and it was just his herds here in the wilderness, but it seems like Abigail, his wife, was there, so most likely... Nabal is another one of these castaways out in the wilderness, living, scraping out survival. But he's figured out a way to make a living doing it, a pretty good one. He's acquired quite a bit of wealth. The time that we meet Nabal is the time where he begins to shear those sheep. It would have been tough work, especially considering he has 3,000 sheep and another 1,000 goats. At the end of this final harvest time, the shearing of all of these animals, it was customary for the owner to throw a big celebration, a kind of feast. For his family and all of the workers who had participated in it and david having spent a significant amount of time and his own resources protecting nabal and these flocks rightfully has the idea that he'll send his men down and maybe they can send back some of this food and celebrate join in the festivities there's no law that says nabal has to do this but it would have been maybe a way to think about it a, a way of tipping him for his services a sense of gratitude look at all that i have you help protect it so here's a little bit for you to celebrate with as well Um, further if you know anything about these ancient middle eastern cultures much like still exists today nabal has a certain kind of uh, a duty a certain sort of honor just in welcoming these visitors these other members of this wilderness community for no other reason than hospitality but instead nabal decides to insult david they're pretty strong words verse 10 nabal answered david's servants who is david who is the son of jesse and then he Comes up with the idea, there's many servants or slaves these days who have broken away from their masters and gone off into the wilderness. Why should I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've killed from my employees, my men, and give it to you? You see the insult. And Baal essentially says something like, who in the world does David think that he is to come and ask of what I have? David, he assumes, is just another one of these escaped slaves, leeching off and taking from whoever he can to survive in the wilderness. Why would I share my wealth with this castaway, this runaway, like David? David, the nobody. Who even knows his name? Who even knows who his father is that he comes making demands of me? Now, when David gets word of that insult, which it is one in the ancient world especially, a new kind of hunger, not the hunger for the food of his celebration, takes over David. And he doesn't use many words to convey it. David simply says, men, get your swords. Uh, we don't need many more words than that to realize exactly what's going through David's mind in that moment. He's been insulted, and he's about to take action and straighten things out for himself. Uh, I was thinking a lot about this passage this week, reading through it, and you know, it's just the chapter before this last week, chapter twenty-four, where David spares the life of Saul when Saul was so vulnerable in the cave in front of him. Saul had been David's greatest threat, and in that moment, at this opportunity, this unbelievable opportunity to take Saul's life. David instead spared him this kind of mercy that recognized even in Saul God's hand anointing at work now we come to this this page the next chapter this Nabal and we say who is Nabal that David is now so ready to pick up the very sword that had spared Saul and use it against him Nabal was rich but here he is in the desert just like David Nabal is no king no ruler he's just as much an outcast of the political system the power of Israel as David is a wealthy one He may have money, he may have possessions, but he's not at the center of anything, not in control of anything. Even amongst outcasts, like Nabal and David, a certain pecking order inevitably develops among people. And Nabal, in his insult, basically goes about shoving David down to the bottom of the pile and pulling himself up to the top of the pile, although the pile is just a bunch of outcasts in the wilderness. His insult is a kind of prejudice that lays out a social structure, a system, and puts himself at the top of it and pushes David down to the bottom. (coughs) Being pushed beneath Nabal is more than David can stomach in this situation. Someone needs to teach this Nabal a lesson is what comes to David's mind. Who does Nabal think that he is, that he could push me around? Doesn't he know who I am? It puts blood in David's eyes, and without much thought, without much reflection, swords strapped to their sides, he and his men ride off to settle the score. A hunger for vengeance, for revenge. It wells up so quickly in David that before his messengers can even catch their breath, David is headed back in the opposite direction where they just came from, Nabal. David's reaction is so surprising for us, if you really catch it, because David has, through so many of these stories, shown himself to be capable of unbelievable amounts of faithfulness and grace. Major tests have come his way, and he's proved himself through them to recognize God and see what God is doing. David is the one who's constantly being described as alive to God and aware to God, a sense of what God is doing, a man after God's own heart. But now, with this foul mouth, nobody Nabal simply insulting him, David has a new hunger. He can't let it stand. He craves to put himself back in the place he thinks he deserves and put this Nabal back in the place that he deserves. David, in that moment, can't see the irony of the motives, but we see it pretty clearly. In the chapter before, David spares the life of an important person, Saul, who among us didn't marvel at his restraint in sparing Saul none of us would have. But here, David can't bear to swallow the insult of a nobody, a castaway like himself in the wilderness. He spares the important person and is enraged by the person just like himself. We may see it in David, his inability to recognize it in himself, causes us to ask a difficult question about the hunger, the desires, the passions that we see well up within us. Hunger often overpowers our better senses. We have senses, seeing and hearing and recognizing what's going on, but when this craving sets in, everything else seems to be shaped by this hunger. And don't fool yourself. Think about it, it's sometimes easier for even us to suffer the ridicule of some distant elite who may take offense at our faith than it is for us to suffer the gossip or slander of a nosy neighbor or an obnoxious co-worker that we imagine no better than ourselves. How can that person insult me? Sparing Saul left David feeling big. It was a big moment in his life. Look at how gracious I had been. Look at what I was capable of, how God-aware I was in that moment. But a nobody like Nabal trash-talking him left David feeling small. There was nothing noble in sparing Nabal, The only thing David could imagine doing now is putting this Nabal back in his place. Um, This is all so little and so petty in all reality. David is surviving. He doesn't need this food to get by. He doesn't need Nabal's relationship. Nabal probably had been doing fine without the protection. All of this is the simple day in and day out of living in the wilderness. But all of a sudden, with these few words... All of it, what's so inconsequential to David's real story of becoming king, suddenly becomes the only thing that David can wrap his mind around that shapes everything that David is doing and thinking and saying. This little insult lodges itself inside of David and leaves him craving, starving, hungry, to feel big, to feel feared, to put himself back in respect. If you were really honest with yourself, we all know that craving pretty well. A little insult comes along and it seems like such a big deal. It strips us down, takes us out of the place we want to be, puts us in a class, a place, small, beneath what we were hoping for. It lodges in our throat and we can't see or think about anything else but setting it straight, putting the record straight. Who do these people think they are? This little insult has revealed something big about David that the big events of life hadn't. David is hungry to be big, to do big things, to be respected, even through great sacrifices he's willing to make. Look at what he's done. David has allowed himself to be important, and now he's come to expect it, to crave it, to demand it from the people around him. If Saul can recognize I, who I am, who does Nabal think he is in tearing me down? But there's something that I think actually worse happens in the story, something worse awakens in David. That second point, which is a strange word I call vulgarity, is hunger develops and it turns into a kind of vulgarness. With his few words of insult, Nabal has really drained all of this God-aware life out of David. Gone are all of those bold words of faith that David had had in so many of the stories, the life affirmation that we had seen everywhere else. And David is now filled with a kind of vulgarity that shocks us. Let me show it to you in an important place. Um, I think the idea of being a Bible translator would be a fascinating one, but a really, really incredibly hard task to take up. Uh, Take this 3,000-year-old text and translate it in a way that everybody understands. If you've ever talked to somebody who's really, really into certain Bible interpretations, I don't know if you know people like this, but there is one translation you should read and no other translation you should read because it's right, you understand a little bit of what Bible translators are up against. They have a really tough job. 3,000-year-old stories make them readable and sellable because at the end of the day, people have to buy the Bible that you're printing. I think in large, they do a remarkably good job of having integrity, but occasionally their stories or places, difficulties... Really jarring stuff in the Bible that in English gets smoothed out a little bit to make it more palatable. Unfortunately, I think David's words in 1 Samuel chapter 25 are one of those places. Remember, this is a Bible story. It isn't sentimental. It's not trying to tell us something cute that we could paint on a wall or doily and hang in our house. This is something that's tough, something that hits us hard and causes us to wake up and realize things about ourselves. It definitely isn't clean. It definitely isn't sterile. David's words look a lot stronger and vulgar in the original Hebrew than they come through to us. But does anyone have a King James version of the Bible? King James actually brings it through with some clarity. When David is stopped by Abigail, he turns into a kind of rage. You see it in verse 21. Surely in vain have I guarded all this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all the belongings to him. And he's returned evil to me for good. And then he has this swear, God... Do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one man of all who belongs to him. That last word is the hardest. It's a kind of slamming of the door at the end of a fight to make the point, an exclamation part. point. He basically says, God, curse me if by morning I haven't killed every man in ball's family. But in the Hebrew, it's a really strong, vulgar profanity. <coughs> The King James Version translates it, If I leave all that pertain to him by the morning light, any that pisseth against the wall is the way that the old King James had it. One of the Jewish translations puts it simply, a weird phrase, Anyone who urinates against the wall is the way that David says it. What in the world is going on with a phrase like that? Uh, It's an uncomfortable one, just as much in the Hebrew as it was. Most translators, like what I read from, the ESV, they opt for this description of if I leave anyone or any man. You see how they soften the phrase out. Thank you very much. A little more palatable. But in the Hebrew, it's really a kind of idiom, a slang word. We aren't 100% sure what it means. Uh, my family has this old phrase when they refer to a really junky town, they sometimes call it a garhole, which is a terrible phrase to say about a junky place. But imagine yourself 3,000 years from now trying to translate some sort of idiom like that into an entirely another culture. That's what we have here. This way, this slang, this profanity for getting across the point. Most translators smooth it out, but probably it's referring to the way that a male dog marks territory. It goes about urinating on walls and pieces to mark his possessions. It's a crude way of calling Nabal and all of his men dogs, the kind of dogs that are greedy and fight for their own territory. A dog is one of the worst insults you could have leveled against any person in the ancient world. So David is closing his arguments, his enraged words, with a kind of profanity, a kind of slang that throws David and Nabal the worst insult possible and renders all of them dogs who mark their territory. You can imagine David, in a fit of words, spitting out that kind of profane curse, feeling completely justified with every syllable of it, a little bit proud of the cruelty and the vulgarness that he's been able to put those feelings into words. The scene and its words leave David looking pretty ugly, is really the conclusion you take away from it. It's awkward, awkward to talk about from a pulpit, awkward for you to probably hear. It makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable to hear David talking this way. It should. This kind of ugliness is not something we come to expect from the Bible or especially from David. But here it is. The one who speaks life, the one who's after God's own heart, now so blinded by rage, spitting out vulgarities and hungry for his, hungry for his own vindication. The whole time with one thing on his mind. Death. Death to anyone who puts me down or stands in my way. Isn't it shocking how quickly all this ratchets up in David's life? The chapter before, the high point of grace, sparing Saul. With a simple line of insult, now all of a sudden, David, ugly and vulgar, cursing, spitting profanities on his way to kill and strike down. But I think there's something even worse still. David swears all this for vulgarity by God. Isn't that remarkable? God's name brought up right in the middle of all of the profanity. He asks God to curse him and his enemies if he doesn't kill, if he doesn't take matters into his own hands. David, like so much of the bad advice we've been seeing in these chapters before, over the last few, uses God, puts God in the center of all of the vulgarity, thinking that God is involved in it. Our own desperate way to try to pull God down, to work our own means, to work our own salvation, to work out our own plans, to make us feel important, all of this God talk, right in the middle of the vulgarity. The words turn into a kind of vulgar worship. Speaking God's name, right in the middle of words about death, destruction, ugliness. I don't know if it does, but that should terrify you a little bit. There's a way to go about talking about God constantly, using God's name, describing God, thinking that he's right there, right there feeling the same thing you are, doing the same thing you want to do, and the whole time you're dripping with ugliness. Bulgarian slaying pours death into a place where God is speaking life. The whole time thinking you're justified, God on your side, and speaking every word of it. I like that word vulgar so much because of how perfectly it fits into these senses, this story of David. You look it up in the dictionary and you get this little phrase, lacking in good taste. To lack in good taste. David's sense of taste has gone completely awry. It started off with a simple hunger, food, to celebrate. The insult had transformed it into rage, vindication. All of this taste now gone awry and needing just as before to be brought back into the reality of God. To recognize his craving for good from his craving for death. And finally, to be able to taste and see what God is doing. I read through a little bit of this book this week, an interesting one, called Food for Life, The Spirituality and Ethics of Eating. It's a Christian author, and she writes this that I thought was really helpful. Our hunger is natural, and it points to a number of other hungers. Hunger of any kind, for food or for companionship, for cultural stimulation and so on. It drives the human animal to search for that which we need, or, in the case of misguided drives, at least, for what we think we need. To be sure, there are distorted hungers, and clear and legitimate and illegitimate limits to the satisfaction of hunger. Even in the case of distortion, however, hunger is a clue to genuine desire and God-given appetites. It's distortion of hungering for God, now taken into its place, God spoken in it, but a hunger for himself, his own salvation, his own revenge, The author goes on to quote Leon Kass as a Christian philosopher who actually chaired the President's Commission on Bioethics a few years back. And I loved this line that he had. Appetite or desire, not DNA, is the deepest principle of life. Appetite, not DNA, is the deepest principle of life. We have another way of saying that. You've probably heard. You are what you eat is the way we often put it. Or another way, a startling way, you are what you crave. You are what you hunger for. That thought terrified me. Who we are is not who we portray ourselves to be, convince ourselves or others that we are. Who we really are is what we most crave, what we hunger for, what sends us into these fits, action, strapping on swords, riding off to save ourselves. If that's true, it's terrifying because of what we see in David, who so far along in this story, we had imagined to be good, really good, remarkably good, doing remarkably good things. It's terrifying because of how quickly it sets on and how completely unaware of it David is, thinking the whole time that he's just as justified by God in this action as all of those actions of grace before. Is it true that David really is what he craves? Because here, these cravings seem stronger than anywhere else we've seen them before. Is this really who David is? It's terrifying because of what it may suggest about us. that We get so many big things right, so many God things right, we look right convince ourselves by using god's name invoking it in hard situations we're on the right path but what's really driving us this hunger this craving inside may have very little to do with life or god and more to do with ourselves an ugly vulgarity that puts ourselves at the center it takes action and speaks death i like how c.s lewis puts it a quote i've used before you'll be familiar with he writes it would seem that our lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday, a vacation at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You see what he's saying in the story. Our issue is not that we crave things too much, that our hunger is too great and we need to quiet it. Don't be hungry. Don't crave things. What Lewis is trying to say is our real issue is we're craving, settling for things, tastes, far too small. We're too easily pleased. Our tastes have settled for a kind of junk food when real feasting lays out before us. The final one is this. David is thankfully stopped. He doesn't carry out all this ugliness that his words show, but what stops him, what challenges him, this third point I've labeled beauty. Now, I get it. It's Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to everyone. Um, It's not a good idea for me to end a sermon on Father's Day with the third point being beauty. I realize that's not what you expect. Most pastors are trying to preach really macho man sermons so that they can reinforce the place. This is a place for men, Uh, and I'm giving you this word beauty. Um, I realize that beauty is not a word we tend to use, especially those of us as men, when we think about what it is to see God or to recognize God. Beauty in our world gets reduced down to some sort of romantic, soft image of sunsets and flowers and babies. What a beautiful baby. What a beautiful night. What a beautiful conversation. But for thousands of years, all the way back even to the time of David, Christians, even Christian men like David, who probably could have taken most of us, have used this word to describe an experience of recognizing, of being in on, in unexpected and sudden ways, what God is doing and who God is. David uses it in Psalm 27. One thing have I asked the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all of the days of my life. And what does he want to do as he's dwelling for all of his days in the Lord's house? so that I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. In this moment, riding off to meet Nabal, ready to spill blood, beauty is the last thing on David's mind. The story so far has been ugly. There's not been anything beautiful about this story. Two men spitting profanities and insults back and forth at each other, ready to take up their swords and do battle. At war, beauty seems like some kind of irrelevant luxury. Who in moments like this desperate moments pays attention to beauty who in the wilderness is thinking about beauty the wilderness as we've described it as a place of survival getting by you know it's interesting freud lumped beauty into the category of luxury not a necessity not something we need to exist or survive it's no part of the survival of the fittest something that might be nice to have and not something at the core of being it's not the way the world gets things done, and make things happen, and for most of us, especially men who are after getting things done and making things happen, beauty seems like something not to pay much attention to, It doesn't pay off. David isn't looking for beauty. There's no craving for that in him in those moments. Beauty is what we look for in free time. When nothing else needs to be done, then maybe we're interested in sunsets and conversations and flowers. But suddenly, Abigail throws herself on her knees before David and breaks his progress. All of his plans come to a screeching halt, this woman kneeling down before him. David's march towards death is brought to this sudden halt. And verse 3, flat out told us that when he looked at Abigail, this woman was described by being physically beautiful. We have this little saying in our culture, beauty is only skin deep. But I think it's wrong in this case. David is going to discover a beauty that runs so much more deeply into her that this phrase, the beauty of the Lord, will take on new meaning. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in an old church that has stained glass windows. I've seen some around here. But the great ones, the ones I've only seen pictures of in places like Europe, the old ones, uh, they always have scenes in them. Oftentimes, these biblical scenes or saints of the historical past, these Bible stories. And the beautiful stained glass windows, they only appear whenever the light shines from the outside and shines into the church through them. The sunlight outside brings to life these stories, these pictures, these images of people cut in glass. It washes over the sanctuary in a spectrum of color, and we look up and see the stories, life, shining through these characters in these stained glass windows. I thought of that image as I thought about Abigail. I think she's this kind of icon. She's beautiful in appearance. There's no doubt it's part of the setting. Verse 3. But when she speaks, and when life and God begin to pour through her words, David's whole world begins to take on a new perspective. His appetite suddenly finds itself transformed. All of a sudden, David finds himself tasting something new, recognizing God in places he hadn't before. This is a kind of beauty he wasn't at all looking for. He wasn't expecting as he rode off to meet Nabal, but all of a sudden it lights up his entire world, Abigail, these words spoken in the wilderness, the stained glass window of God's light pouring into the story, life. How can he not take this seriously? How could he rush past it in light of what she's saying? The real beauty is her wisdom, her poetry, not just her appearance. Her words, if you pay close attention to them, are pretty remarkable. The last image she gives is particularly my favorite. It's poetic, but it's poetic in a kind of subversive way, a really smart and wise way that a woman undermines a man and uses his own images and words against him. Too many women are chuckling. Verse 25, uh, verse 29, she says this to David. I love the way she puts it. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, in the care of the Lord your God, bound in the bundle of the living, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. David, don't you realize that your life is not bound up in the death and vulgarity of men like Nabal, your life is bound up in this world of living. And your enemies will be hurled out into death like a stone from a sling. You see how smart and wise she is. She pulls back a picture of his greatest moment and uses it in this moment to re-put everything in his mind in a new perspective. There's so much to that simple little image, those sparse words. Her affirmation of David as the one alive to God, her subtle allusion to David's defeat of Goliath, life and beauty in the middle of the ugliest men in this barren, ugly wilderness— And she speaks a kind of beauty that all of a sudden transforms everything in David's mind. And David, for his benefit, instantly recognizes it. God. She's speaking God. Beauty has drawn his attention back to God in the middle of this story, at the center of this story. It's drawn his attention back to life, aware of God and all of this empty wilderness, this revenge in his heart. Suddenly, his hunger seems so small in comparison to these words that Abigail is speaking. I wonder if you ever recognize moments like this in your own life. Maybe not with swords strapped to your side, out to take your own revenge, beautiful women throwing themselves down at your feet, probably not most of us. But still, at the core of this, us, on our mission, our own agenda, and something catching us totally off guard and pouring into that moment, God, where we hadn't expected him. Something suddenly interrupts you, pulls your attention into something bigger great conversation with a friend, beautiful evening sitting outside, a perfect day on the water, perfect slice of pumpkin pie. I added that one because I had a really good one last (laughs) night. All of a sudden, when you weren't expecting something bigger, something really big, some new reality somehow works its way into your consciousness, and you realize in that moment that there's more going on than you would recognize or first tasted, that you're in on something bigger than just what you were trying to make for yourself. Great art, great works of beauty do just that. They wake us up, they take us by the shoulders and shake us and force us to see something bigger, something that we had been missing in our own agendas and our own plans. Here's what I want you to see in this story if you miss everything else. If we're willing to see it, if we're willing to pay attention and recognize this beauty knocking us off of our horses and forcing us on us a palate, a taste, a desire that we hadn't seen before, a craving, It becomes an invitation for us to recognize God in places, wilderness places, where we hadn't been looking. In these wilderness times, we tend to care least about beauty. Those times end up being the very times that beauty becomes most compelling, most transforming, most reality-shaping. Most of you know every year I go to South Dakota a couple times for pheasant hunting. Uh, When people tell you that they go to South Dakota, they're usually going to the Badlands or the Black Hills or Mount Rushmore. Not at all the part of South Dakota we go to. Uh, No one tells you they're going on vacation to Lemon, South Dakota, or Gettysburg, South Dakota, or Lake Andy, South Dakota. But we do. A couple times every year, we find ourselves in these places where no other tourists go. The reason, because there's absolutely nothing there to see if you don't like pheasants. Fields, miles of them, and places not hardly a tree in any direction, 360 degrees for as far as you can look. Um, Imagine trying to send a postcard back home. Look at our beautiful vacation spot. (laughs) There's nothing, absolutely nothing in the background. I often fall asleep, we will drive all night on the trip up there, and I'll wake up at different points and look out the window, and it's hard to ever have any sense of where you are because everything you look at in that moment looks like everything you've looked at for the last two hours before it. There's nothing to define anything anywhere in the landscape. But every once in a while something happens. There's these moments where I see something more in all of that wilderness emptiness. Most of the time it happens when I'm alone in some open field, walking, running my hands through the switchgrass, waiting. More sky above me than you could ever possibly take in or see, turning. All of a sudden, I'm not just pheasant hunting. I find myself worshiping. It's a simple kind of worship, more maybe a sense of awe. Being in on something. Standing somewhere. Participating in something that I had been overlooking with so much of my own agenda on my mind. It's interesting because the experience always leaves me feeling small in that empty space, but at the same time, caught up in something bigger. These proportions put right the very proportions that seem to be off for David. Feeling small by an insult and demanding himself bigger, but standing in this empty, beautiful place, all of a sudden I realize I'm in on something bigger and the smaller for it. All of a sudden, faith. It isn't just about me, what I'm getting done, where I'm hoping to go next, what I'm doing. I'm pulled into something and refined and reshaped in my tastes, my appreciation for something bigger around me, creation. I imagine it's what David felt in that moment as he listened and looked at Abigail, knelt before them in that empty, barren wilderness, on his way, about his work, his mission. The words of Abigail all of a sudden make their swords, their goal of revenge, look like toys and childishness. How foolish to be riding with his swords strapped to my side as I ride into this wilderness of God full reality, the bigness of what he's doing around me. David had imagined that it was Nabal's words that made him feel small, and the truth is Abigail made him look small and feel small all the same, and by it, finally brought him back to the right proportions, the God proportions of being in on something bigger. Smallness in the scale of God at work in this massive landscape. And in the end, David ends up wondering, who is Nabal? What is this insult? David, look around you. God at work. Lewis, again, has a great way of saying it. We don't want merely to see beauty. We want something else which can hardly be put into words. I struggled with it this week. We want to be united with the beauty that we see, to pass into it, to receive it in ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. Uh, The poet Emily Dickinson wrote, Beauty crowds me till I die. I love that line. This beauty overpowers me, pushes me down so small until I cease to exist, but am somehow in on it participant in what God is doing in this creation. We live in a world that has an awkward relationship with beauty, and it's not too different than the world of Nabal. Imagine Nabal in all of his gross, insulting foolishness married to Abigail with all of her beauty and wisdom and sense of God and life. Quite a pair. Abigail's name literally means my father's delight, and I imagine this week that it was probably the last man who truly appreciated how beautiful she was, the depth of her wisdom and grace. Men saw what they wanted to see, a pretty face, and Abigail lived in an ancient world where beauty was something to be owned, taken, possessed, kept. Most likely, it was Nabal's wealth that gave him the opportunity to marry Abigail. He had bought his way into it, taken possession of her. And don't be naive. David, for all that he gets right, will do the same thing with Bathsheba. See a beautiful figure, a shape, and take it for himself. Not for a moment, wondering about the light of God shining through this soul. We imagine beauty as something we can possess, something we own. We surround ourselves with beautiful things. We try to make ourselves beautiful. We seek out beautiful companions. We want beautiful houses and things to put in it. We want beautiful vacations and beautiful pictures and beautiful moments to remember. But Nabal owning Abigail's beauty doesn't for one minute make him beautiful or more alive to what God is doing around him. Take all the beautiful pictures that you want, Stockpile diamonds and clothes and furniture, show up on covers, being beautiful in everyone else's sight, or maybe in my case, find the perfect stream on the perfect day with the perfect cast from a beautifully crafted fly rod, beautiful moment, and still what's inside This hunger for death, this hunger for vulgarity, this hunger for my own way, sucking the life out of creation, sucking the life out of the beauty, trying to own it, trying to take it and use it for myself a hunger to make myself big. It turns out that I'm the one lacking in good taste. We, as much as David, need our senses refined. We need a reshaping of how we look at beauty and the lessons that we take from it, the way that it loosens our grip on the things around us instead of us making us desperate to grab it for ourselves. We need to be interrupted by Abigail's and witness the light of God pouring into moments where we hadn't expected God to be. David picks up on that theme in Psalm 34. It's a great one. He knows that this sense of beauty that pulls our attention to God is not something that comes naturally to us. It's not our first knee-jerk reaction, and it's not something that this world around us is teaching us to do. So he offers us some advice. It's a famous line. You've heard it before. Psalm 34. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. That word good can just as easily be translated beautiful. Taste and see that the Lord is it's beautiful. It's the same word God uses in Genesis 1 when he looks down on creation and says, it's good. This creation is beautiful. David's advice reminds us the Christian faith, following Christ, living this life that we do, is never just about affirmation. It's never just about words, abstract ideas that help us get a handle on God and morality. At the heart of faith, at the center of what God is doing in restoring and restoring in salvation, is Taste. Taste and see. Don't just check God boxes and think you have it figured out. Wake up tasting it, looking for it, listening for it, in on this creation. You know, I can't help but see Abigail, this wilderness wife, marginalized, used, carnal, ch- carnal, foolish husbands and men, nobody recognizing self or God in her, but nonetheless, here she is, faithful in it. I see her life, and I can't help but think of Jesus, who steps into the middle of one of the ugliest stories, our stories our lives. And just as we are well on our way, all of us, about our own business, working out our own salvation, our own justification, he throws himself down in the path before us. Greater than Abigail, he doesn't just avert death, but he himself is run over by our ugliness and takes it. Full death. Everything that David had intended for Nabal, everything that we waged to get our own way, Christ takes it upon himself. Most people look at Jesus deformed his bloody body hanging mocked on a cross, and the last word that they say to themselves is, how beautiful. But for centuries now, Christians have done just that. They've looked at that image and said, this is beauty. They've written songs about it and painted it on church walls and hung it in their homes and on jewelry around their necks. God's light shining through this wilderness, this darkest moment, pulling into us a taste and a craving and desire for something far bigger than most of us had realized. Our appetites changed, and transformed, and refined. I want to end with this. Each of these wilderness stories has tried to shake us, to grab us, and wake us up to some reality. They challenge our perspectives, what we hear and what we see in this one, what we crave. They send us out, not with more things to do, go away this week with these three steps to put in place, but they go away hoping that we see more and taste more, and recognize more, hear more, in the very world that we came in, now leaving in a whole new reality, embracing it in a new way. If you don't find yourself, on frequent occasions, caught completely off guard by something beautiful, this kind of beautiful, that pulls us to God, something that throws your petty thoughts and routines into a bigger reality, if that isn't something that's been happening in your life, then you're missing out on one of the greatest invitations of following Jesus and being in on salvation, this renewing of all creation. After his resurrection, Jesus sat down with his disciples on a shore, along a sea. He shares a conversation, fish, a fire, time together. He says to them, Take this fish and eat. He says to us, Taste and see. Come and see. Catch a glimpse of this beauty and realize that you are in on something so much greater than the pettiness of our own desires, our own wills, our own agendas children with toy swords strapped to our side out to make a name for ourselves. I like the way Peterson puts it, the conclusion of his commentary on this section. He says, we're stopped by something beautiful, a child, a friend, a stranger, a cloud, a song, a fragrance, Abigail. We find ourselves presented with something quite other than what we're feeling and doing. We suddenly realize that we are quite other than what we were feeling and doing. Wrapped up in ourselves, we had forgotten entirely about God. We now see ourselves as wrapped up in the bundle of God, the bundle of the living, with Nabal reduced to nothing more than a footnote to the text of our life. This is my closing prayer as we wrap up. There's a lot of Nabal going on in the world around us, that will use you and teach you to use others, that will use beauty as a mechanism to get more or to be gotten, a lot of ugliness, and even amongst Christians, it stirs up a lot of vulgarity in the way that we talk and live. I pray that something beautiful catches us off guard, catches you off guard, that it allows you to taste and see something in this world of creation soaked with God that you had been missing, that it will get you in on something bigger, something you hadn't expected even in these wilderness experiences and experience of God. The invitation, taste and see that the Lord it's good. Let's close in prayer.